this last Monday night at our uh, family Bible study, Keith um, asked me a, uh, a question when I felt called to be a pastor, um, or maybe just when I knew that that was what I wanted to do. And I think it turned out to be like a 45-minute answer. I, you know, one question, 45 minutes, that's not bad. Yeah, that's not a bad um, time, which I, I, I don't know if he was prepared for it. He said he was, but... Um, but despite giving too long of an answer, I wasn't satisfied with my own answer. It like haunted me all week. Um, I think um, in answering the question, I think I answered the question, but I don't think I was concise enough um, to actually capture my feelings on the topic, which I think turned out to be a good thing because I spent the week wrestling with it. And uh, like, when did I feel cold? And, uh, and I think I, I found that it bears pretty heavily on this morning's topic. And so... Um, I want to start with the night that I, I answered an altar call and literally ran to the front of Kemper Arena um, to start kind of this long journey with Jesus. I've told that story before, um, but the night uh, was perfect for me, and I couldn't see how anyone, after um, this kind of clear and personal presentation of the gospel, wouldn't want to accept Jesus and, and get saved. Like, it was a no-brainer to me, and I was the first one at the altar. So on the way home, I was really disturbed that Danny, this buddy of mine, um, who was the guy who actually invited me to this event, didn't answer the altar call, and that bugged me. And, and uh, how could he have known enough about God to want to be there um, but not want to get to know Jesus even better and accept Jesus? So I asked him. I said, uh, we were on the way home. We were in this van going back to Lansing. It was an FCA like field trip that we were on. And I said, hey, can I ask you a question? And he said, um, Sure. I was like, how come you didn't go down? Like, how come you didn't accept Jesus? And, uh, and he says, uh, well, Chris, I'm, I've been a Christian for a long time. I answered an altar call like that years ago at a youth camp or at a children's camp. And I said, uh, and you never told me? He was like, what do you mean? I was like, just going to let me go to hell? Like, what if I died? <laughs> like, what was your plan then? Like, you're just going to let me, like... You never said a word. This is like the biggest news ever. And you didn't, you were just holding it? And he was like, dude, I invited you. And I was like, well, what if we died on the way here? Then what? Like, and it turned into like a pretty good little, little argument. Match. But you have to understand, I have this tendency to be like incredibly gullible. Like I, I, I just buy whatever is given to me. Um, recently I started cold plunging. If you don't know what that is, Google it. It's a whole thing. Um, but after seeing it online, I looked up some studies, read about the benefits, and decided to give it a try. Um, and all the studies said that for, to get the full benefits, three minutes, three to six minutes. There's no evidence going longer than six minutes is important, at least three. Um, and so I filled my stock tank, filled it with ice, uh, and I picked exactly halfway between three and six, four and a half minutes. Um, and I did four and a half minutes and, and almost died. Like, it was brutal. Um, and then I get online, and I'm, I'm, this is a long time later, and I'm watching all these people who I've seen do the cold plunge online, you know, and they're showing their first ones, and they're staying in for like 15 seconds, 30 seconds, and then easing up, like next time, maybe 45 minutes. I didn't know that was an option. They told me three minutes, I did three minutes. Like, nobody told me I could, like, ease into it. I only did it like that because the thing said you're supposed to do it. I'm gullible. Whatever they tell me to do, that's what I do, and so I did it. Um, and then, uh, uh, yeah, and then the, but the worst one, and this is what I first noticed that I had this tendency, um, was when I was a freshman in high school. I think I had two hairs on my chin, like two little whiskers, so I'm shaving because um, it's time now. I got two whiskers. And, 
And, and I'm incredibly proud of these two whiskers. And so to do the job right, I've got this huge beard of shaving cream on, you know, so that I can get my two whiskers. And uh, I'm well covered. And, um, and that's when my dad walks in and he sees this masterpiece that I've built on my face. Uh, and of course, knowing that I only had two whiskers, my dad asked, what on earth are you doing? Um, to which I actually declared that I'm shaving. I'm old enough to shave now, which prompted him to scoff, of course. And then he suggested I just put a little cream on it, let the cat lick it. That should take care of the problem. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then as he was walking away, he kind of throws over his shoulders. Um, real men don't even use shaving cream. They use soap. And, uh, and here's the deal. I grew up watching John Wayne. My dad was a man's man. There was little I wanted more as a freshman in high school than to be a real man. And if real men shave without shaving cream, then I would too. So about 2,500 Band-Aids and two blood transfusions later, I finally figured out how to shave without shaving cream, um, which was fine. I got the hang of it until my senior year in high school. I walked into the bathroom and caught my dad shaving, and guess what was on his face? A huge thing of shaving cream. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, what are you doing? And he says, you said real men don't even use shaving cream. He was like, you idiot, I was messing with you. I don't want to cut my face to ribbons. And, and, but he told me to do it. I believed it. I'm just, I'm just gullible that way. This, it's, uh, what can I say? But this gullibility has served me um, through the years because I, for years and years and years, I wasn't smart enough to doubt. Uh, from that night that I jogged down to an altar to change my life, I believed that the Bible was not only true but right. If you read it, you believe it. You just do it. If the Bible says I was a sinner, I wasn't smart enough to ask if that's Old Testament or New Testament or we talk about ceremonial laws like eating bacon or moral laws like killing people. If the Bible said I was a sinner, I just believed it because that's what it said. In fact, I drove people nuts my, uh, when I first fully gave my life to Jesus and I, someone was reading Romans 13. It said, obey the laws of the land. And so I quit speeding and I was driving all my friends nuts because even going around a turn when it gave you the suggested speed, I would slow down to the suggested speed. And they're like, oh, come on, that's just a suggestion. I was like, obey the laws of the land, man. The Bible says do it, so you do it. Like, and uh, we'd be late places, and I'm just tooling along at the speed limit. Everybody's like, come on! I was like, nope, I'm not going to do it. The Bible said it's a sin. But if the Bible said I was saved by grace, I just believed it. I, I, I just believed it. it didn't come by my own work and efforts. The Bible said that God would pour out His Spirit and people would speak in tongues. I wanted to speak in tongues. If the Bible said it, I wanted it. If the Bible said I was supposed to serve the least of these, then I started looking for poor people to serve. The very first debate I got into with my mentor was uh, we were reading the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus said that we're supposed to turn the other cheek. And immediately I was like, oh, that's going to be tough. I like fighting. And so... And so I'm like, I'm, I guess I'm a pacifist now. And, and, uh, and I asked my mentor about it. And he was like, well, God doesn't want us to be a doormat. And I reread the passage. I was like, kind of sound like he does. <laughs> and and uh, he said, well, David fought battles and defeated his enemies for God. I think we can too. And I reread the passage again. I was like, I'm just saying, Jesus said if someone hits you, you turn the other cheek. And that doesn't sound like being a warrior and swinging a sword. And we debated about it for a good long time. Because if the Bible said it, I just believed it. Um, and this also got me into trouble because when people would tell me that there were things that Christians just didn't do, I would say, show me that in the Bible. And they would say, well, if you take this verse and you kind of look at the meaning and you compare it to this verse, I was like, hold on. 
If this is that important, the Bible would just say it black and white. If the Bible doesn't say it black and white, then I don't know why we make such a big deal about it. And that didn't always go over real well. But um, and I know I'll make it sound like, you know, that it was a faith thing, like I had all this faith to just automatically believe the Bible because I was that faithful. But the truth is, I was too dumb to know there was another option. I just I was told that's what you were supposed to do. And back then, if I was told to do something, it was the shaving cream deal all over again. Well, this morning's sermon, we're going to close out our first series of 2024 and, and start to prepare for Lent. And I'm going to hope to call all of us um, to be a little dumber, um, to be a little more gullible, uh, to, to be a little more simple and faithful. Um, this has been a fun series as we've taken some time to look in the mirror and wonder um, if we're ready to obey the Great Commission um, to go to all the earth and make disciples. We started by asking if we were ready. Uh, we, um, this is when we wrestle with the idea that Paul introduced his followers to imitate him as he imitated Christ. Paul used his own life as an example of what it means to follow Jesus. Um, so we established that our actual lives, the, the things we do day in and day out, are the greatest tool for evangelism in our, uh, that we possess um, not our theology, not our apologetics, not our worldview or our politics. Um, when we see, when people see us living out what we believe, that preaches better than any sermon we could ever write. Um, the second week we talked about whether or not we're different. Um, this is when we compared kind of my knockoff Android-based uh, cheap tech to Graham's Apple gear. Uh, Graham's gear cost a lot more. As I learned at youth camp, it does a lot more. Um, and the Christian life is the same. There is no doubt that when we share Jesus with the world, we're asking them to buy in at a pretty high price. We're asking them to give up some things. We're asking them to change their lives, which is a ludicrous proposal, unless there are some features to this life that are worth the cost. And of course, eternity is a pretty great feature. Um, but remember, our, our, our lives are the best tool for evangelism. So if, if, if we have to wrestle with the question of whether or not our lives reflect what is good about following Jesus, um, about being a Christ follower, are we different? Is there something different about us? Because there should be. Uh, week three, we talked about our health. Building on the idea of being different, there is nothing more countercultural, there's nothing more different right now than being healthy. Um, it seems like everyday science, whether it's health and nutrition, psychology, sociology, finance, everyday data and research confirms that the Bible has known what it's talking about for thousands of years. We not only have access to the Word of God for morality and salvation, but we have access to a great deal of health and wisdom. And as we access that health, spirit, soul, and body, we find that we have something real to offer the world. When we go out to make disciples, we find that we have something real um, to give them right here, right now. Two weeks ago, I broke the rules and we talked about money. <laughs> and I had to because the Bible talks so much about money. But in the context of sharing the kingdom with others, um, it, it takes on a new light. First, it takes money to do that. Um, we have to invest in it. And second, how dare we invite our friends and coworkers and families and neighbors to buy into something we haven't bought into ourselves? Jesus said our hearts follow our dollars. And if we want our hearts to be set on eternal things, we have to invest our dollars in eternal things. 
How many of you are like valued something because you spent a lot on it? Like, and if you're not sure, uh, just let a kid pick it up. You ever had a kid pick up something expensive and you're like, ooh. Like, you ever done that? You ever felt that? Like, anybody have like two sets of dishes? Like the ones that are for nice people and then the ones you don't mind the kids? Yeah. Yeah, tell me just Jesus didn't know what he was talking about when he said your heart goes with your money. Like, we've all felt it. A kid picks up, you know, a priceless thing and your heart drops out the bottom. Like, yeah, we all know what that's like. Uh, we need to make sure we treasure the right stuff. And last week we talked about authenticity. Um, and I'll be honest, I think the church in general needs more work on this one. Um, maybe more than all the rest. Um, especially when it comes to sharing the gospel. The, the world can smell a fake coming a mile away. Um, if we are embracing the reality that our lives are our best tool for evangelism in our go bag, um, then we can't escape the fact that this is not a sales pitch. We need to start by having our own real relationship with Jesus. And then we need to communicate that with transparency, sharing that relationship with others. It's not a scheme or a program or a tract we can hand out. It's us. Just us and the beautiful gospel message that saved us. Authenticity is key to truly advancing the kingdom of God. Well, this week we're wrapping up with a question that uh, I don't even intend to be elegant. No fancy trimmings, no gimmicks, no elaborate unpacking of scripture, um, but also no agenda. I'm not asking this question to get you to sign up for anything or to manipulate or any particular behavior from you. Um, this is just simply a question for us to take home and wrestle with. Um, this is between you and God, and I think it's a great question to take into Lent and contemplate as we begin our journey toward Easter, and that's, are you all in? Are you all in? The Great Commission from which we get this idea of going um, has been quoted and turned into art and written about and used as a motivational speech for 2,000 years. It served as the rally cry for every evangelist who's ever lived. And, and, and unfortunately, we tend to divorce it from the narrative story of the New Testament. Here's how it actually reads. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all my commands I've given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's so beautiful. So clean and clear. The church's job description. Those are our marching orders. But the thing we have to remember is that these are fishermen and tax collectors and ordinary people. There's some evidence that maybe one of the disciples was the disciple of another rabbi when he, when he left to follow Jesus. So maybe one of them had a little bit of Torah training. But the majority of the disciples would have fit in really nicely here at Open Table. Ordinary folk. There's no, um, these are not strategic ministry elites. These are, they don't have a huge startup budget. And these guys are not going on a short-term mission trip that they can pay for with a car washing fundraiser. Plus, this is a huge task that Jesus gives a tiny group of ragamuffins. There's 12 of them. Go into all the world. That's ridiculous. This is not a weekend warrior project. This is a huge vision. There is simply no way the disciples, the very first iteration of you and me, 
could even contemplate the Great Commission without going all in. This was not something they could tack on to their lives. This was not something they could do as an extra. And of course, this was no shock to them. They were ready for this. This is the kind of stuff they'd been listening to for the past three years. If you love your father and mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give your life for me, you will find it. And this sounds poetic, a little bit like marriage vows or some, some kind of hyperbolic promise. But the 12 guys to whom Jesus said this, 11 of them were martyred for Jesus and John was imprisoned for his faith. How hyperbolic does losing your life sound to them? Sounds pretty literal. The Great Commission is not for the faint of heart and it's not for the part-time believer. Jesus put it this way. He said, uh, come, follow me. The man agreed but said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus said, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow, but first let me say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. That's a lot. I wish that wasn't there. I wish Jesus was a little more chill. I mean, who among us hasn't made excuses from here to there? We have something pressing in on our lives and we say, this, I have to do this first. I do believe that it's right here um, where I better reiterate um, what I said the very first week, that I firmly believe we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Um, we are not saved or kept saved by the hard work we put in or how much we're able to maintain our focus. We are not talking about our salvation we're talking about evangelism. When you try to share the gospel with the lost and you have one foot on each side of the fence, they see that hypocrisy. And that's not fair because there are hypocrites everywhere, but uh, not just in Christianity, but there's no doubt that it's part of our reputation and we have to face that. It's kind of weird right now because Monday night... Bible study talks keep finding their way into my sermon. But this week we talked about this word picture I saw a guy do where he was walking up. He had two ladders sitting next to each other and he was walking up the ladder, both ladders at the same time, one foot on each. And for a few rungs, he could make that work. It was even a little more comfortable when you got one foot on each ladder, a little more stable, feels secure. But then the next rung becomes a little bit of a stretch. And that's a little less comfortable. But you settle in. And then the next rung gets really tough. Okay, these pants are a little tight for that. <laughs> and then you reach a point where you can go no higher without abandoning one ladder to commit to the other. And I think that rung is real genuine, obedient disciple-making. I think when you start to obey the Great Commission, you have to go all in. You have to leave one ladder and commit to the other. But the beautiful thing is that once you commit to the, to the one ladder, you can actually go higher. It's a sacrifice to leave the other ladder, 
there's a cutting that has to happen. There's, a, there's a, an exit. But listen to how Jesus puts it. So Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try and hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. See, we have this tendency to think in terms of sacrifice. We have this tendency to think in terms of what we're giving up. Jesus doesn't explain it that way at all. He's trying to bless us. He's like, there's great stuff up that ladder. There's amazing stuff up that ladder. Everything you've ever wanted and dreamed for and dreamed of and everything you were made for, everything you're looking for is up that ladder. I'm sure you guys have heard how they catch monkeys in Africa. I think every preacher in the world has used this example. They either find a tree with the right size hole in it or they'll carve one in a tree. And they'll, they'll put these treats that monkeys love inside this tree. And, and the monkey will go in and they'll squish their hand up to slide it in and they'll grab the treats and they can't get their fist back out of the hole. I've actually seen videos of it. You can look it up on YouTube. The monkey will almost dislocate its shoulder going nuts to get out of this tree. And then the people who are trying to catch or kill the monkeys will, will come up and, and do their business. And the monkey will thrash and pull and, and completely freak out and go crazy. But the one thing the monkey will not do is drop that treat. All he's got to do is let go of the treat and pull his hand out. The monkey won't do it. Fully trapped by his own grip. It's really easy to call the monkey stupid for not dropping the treat. But I'm sure if you spoke monkey and you translated Jesus' words into the AMV, the authorized monkey version, um, <laughs> just like us, the monkey would read it and quote it and memorize it and study it while keeping a firm grip on that treat. This is not a message today about sacrificing everything for Jesus, going all in about losing your life. It's about finding it. It's about finding what we were made for. On the grand scheme of the vastness of the universe, it's the only thing that can give our lives meaning. And I'll be honest, at my age, I'm not that annoyed by sin anymore. I'm <laughs> just not. At least not when the world sins. When the church sins, I get a little frustrated but. I used to be. I used to get really upset when people would embrace a sinful lifestyle and I would preach and, and, and everything against it. And I used to get really angry about it and I'd turn to politics. Let's make sin illegal so people will stop doing it. Like that's ever worked. But honestly, sin itself barely bugs me anymore. You know what does drive me crazy? What really breaks my heart and motivates me to get up in the morning and do everything I can to join the Great Commission, what truly upsets me and offends me to my core is meaninglessness. Lack of real eternal purpose. There's nothing sadder than people scrabbling around, working jobs, fighting to keep their family functioning and their lawns mowed and all the things that go into living for a single lifetime on this giant rock, but with no reason other than it's what you have to do because the alternative seems worse. That's gross. We were made for so much more than that. And I believe we were made to go to bed every night feeling like we did more than just survive another day. 
We were made to, to know that we did something of lasting eternal value. The very first time Jesus sent out his disciples to announce his kingdom in Luke 10. I think we see a glimpse of how deep this goes. It says, when the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, we even made demons obey us when we used your name. Yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. and You can walk among uh, snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. The disciples, this group of fishermen and ordinary guys, come back basically saying, finally, we're doing something of lasting value. We're doing something real. Finally, we're fighting real enemies and eternal battles. And Jesus rejoices with them. He doesn't, he doesn't disparage them. He even, he even like spurs them on. I've given you authority over this stuff. Nothing can hurt you. Go. But guess what? It even goes deeper than that. Not only do you, do you get to live differently than everybody else, and do you have a different kind of authority and power than everybody else, waking up every morning to do battle against the gates of hell and to advance the kingdom, not only do you live life with real purpose, but when life has run its course, it's not over. Actually aware of that reality is how we are supposed to live every day. And by God, that should change things. It should fill us with a deep craving desire to see others escape the meaningless rat race of life and step into real meaning and real purpose. See, when Jesus says sacrifice everything, hate everyone else compared to how much you love me, give up your life completely for my namesake and never look back, he's not asking us to make a sacrifice. He's not asking us to to give up something valuable. It'll feel like that. It'll always feel like that at first. Jesus is trying to get us to let go of the tree in the tree so that we can live, really live. When Esther and I had our oldest son, I loved Esther more than I thought I could love another human. Anything I had previously called love seemed laughable. And then my son was born. The second there's another human in the room, I saw him. I knew I would die for him immediately. I would take a bullet for this kid. I'd give anything for him. But you know what's crazy? I didn't take part of the love that I'd given the, for Esther and give it to Josiah. If anything, I loved Esther more. I couldn't believe the miracle she had just done. She grew a human, like made a person. I wanted to kiss all over her face and squeeze her super tight and never let her go. Like, not the, like, you know, uh, of mice and men thing, I'm going to love her and hug her. And not that. I couldn't believe she'd given me a baby boy. Like, I, if anything, I felt more love for her. Now I've got this human that I feel like has all my love and my wife that has all my love. I loved her with 100% of the love that I was capable of and then the second I had a son, I loved him just as much, if not more. When Jesus tells us to love him more than anyone else in our lives, he's not telling us to love him and not everyone else. It's more like he looks at the, our pitiful attempt to love and says, oh, you need to do 
better than that. You need way more than that. If you'll give me 100% of my heart, not only will you find your love for me growing, but you'll find you're more capable of loving them. If you'll love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you'll be able to turn to your neighbor and love them more. Love doesn't divide, it multiplies. Jesus isn't trying to take anything away from you. He's trying to give to you. That's how love works. It makes no sense, but it's how it works. Let me give you one more crummy example. Owning a pet is the stupidest endeavor a human could ever undertake. Completely illogical. Let's say it's a dog. From day one of owning a dog, you know that you're going to have your heart broken. Chances are you're going to outlive that dog. The average lifespan of a dog is 10 to 13 years. So most likely, most of us are going to outlive any dog we get. So from the first day you meet your dog, you know you'll watch that dog die. You'll have your heart ripped out. So why on earth would you ever own a dog or allow yourself to get attached to one? And the answer is self-evident. Love is bigger than heartbreak. Love is worth more than heartbreak. Because the alternative to the broken heart is to not love. And that's worse. So as much as we hate heartbreak, the alternative is much, much worse. So we sacrifice our heart knowing that at some level it will be broken. And in return we get to love an animal that just seems created to give joy and comfort. Jesus says, give me your life, your entire life. You're all in life. And it will likely get broken. But trust me, you'll get so much back. So much more back in return. And like I say, I'm not asking for anything. I'm not asking for perfect church attendance. I'm not asking for more money. I'm not starting some campaign or trying to manipulate anyone to anything. But I will say this morning, if you are standing on two different ladders and you constantly hearing... You constantly hear me calling us to go higher, calling us to draw closer to God, calling us to be more and more transformed by the gospel. And you like that idea and you feel that call, but you have no idea what that looks like. Maybe you need to take your foot off the other ladder and go all in. Lent starts on Wednesday. What a perfect time to practice taking your foot off the other ladder. Maybe cut off some of the sources of kind of worldly engagement for 46 days. Get off social media, turn off Netflix, step away from the 24-hour news cycle of what's going on in politics. That's a big ask on an election year. But step away. Step away, put on some worship music, watch The Chosen, go to a small group, watch some old black and white classics that have good morals in them. Go for a hike, touch nature. Cleanse the palate. Say, I want to go up a couple more rungs on the ladder. But I've got to get my foot off this other ladder. I can't do that while standing on two ladders. This is the year to go. And that's going to require us to be all in. So how do we respond to this? Last Monday when Keith asked me when I felt called to ministry... The honest answer is I don't think I ever did. What I felt from day one, literally from the first hour that I gave my life to Jesus, was the call to go all in. I just knew this is something I'm going to give my whole life to. 
Maybe I was just gullible and didn't realize that I was allowed to start slow. Start with one minute in the tub. But I believe from day one that I was supposed to give my life to Jesus. And that was all or nothing. So I moved towards ministry because I was told that I was pretty good at it. And I love doing it. It's my passion. But for me, that's not the call. The call is to be all in. That's the call. The call is to actually give my life for this thing. So whether it was framing or laying carpet or setting tile or working in my own backyard or changing diapers, whatever you do with your days, the call is the same. If your passion is business, I would hate to see you spoil that by doing ministry for a living. You should do business. But the call is exactly the same as mine, to be all in. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, and to go. Same call, different job, but same call. So as we close out this series, here's how I'd love to respond to this message. First, if you can make it to Wednesday night, come. Come to Ash Wednesday, start Lynn off right. And if you can't, I get that. But start this day, maybe even today, maybe tomorrow. Enjoy the Super Bowl. (laughs) But start asking God to help you choose the right fast for this year. Something that helps you get off that other ladder and go all in. Jesus literally gave his all for us. You couldn't ask more all in than the cross. And that, that was an example that we're actually supposed to follow. If you uh, want to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. The cross did, did more than just save us. It did, but it did more than that. It showed us how to live. How to find life, real life. The life that the world promises but never delivers. Jesus says, here, let me show you. You just let go and go all in. It's not a command, it's an invitation. Let's go to the table.